I mean, here's a guy <laughs> who literally has called in and killed or watched. I don't even know how many countless, like dozens of world-class trophy bull elk. 400 you know, inch. Like 400 <laughs> plus inch bull elk. Well, and how about he's the sheep? super excited about killing turkeys. You, you know, know, I have I mean, people on my Instagram page all the time. They'll send me, oh, gosh, now it's spring. Now all we're going to see from you is turkeys. And I'm like, hey, man, get over it. That's what <laughs> I love. It's springtime. It's time to hunt turkeys. Like, that's what we're doing. <laughs> Guys, how's it going? Not too bad, Jay. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. When it comes up, it says Dave Smith, and there's a picture of the full strutter, like an up-close picture. It's pretty cool. Oh, very nice. How are you doing, Jay? Good, buddy. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. We're we're kind of excited. Goose, goose season's over, and turkey season's right around the corner. Is there any break for you guys at all, or are you just pedal to the floor and going like your butt's on fire? Well, me personally... I'm trying to catch a steelhead with my fly rod right now. <laughs> let's, so. be, let's be real honest. We got fishing on the brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but that, you know, but that really tapers down right around the middle, the middle of April. So then it's time to start hunting turkeys. Perfect timing. So what is uh, the steelhead running? Is it going to be a good year? No, it's, it's, it's kind of tapering down towards the end yeah. right now. Gotcha. And it, it hasn't been a good year. We haven't had good runs of steelhead in quite a quite a long time and you know i'm trying to i'm doing a, a spay rod and trying to swing a wet fly nice and it's really difficult and i've caught one this year i caught two last year like it's just and and last year was my first year um so it's just it's something that's really diff, difficult and it's really different and i'm kind of taking up you know steelhead fishing and and spay spay fishing at the same time um and then a lot of people telling me I'm crazy for trying it on winter steelhead because summer steelhead are so much more difficult. But it's just, you know, it's one of those things. You, you of all people would understand the allure of taking on something extremely difficult. I do. I completely understand. that. That's the whole added intrigue of the whole thing. Absolutely. And so rewarding when you, when you succeed. For sure. Well, well, welcome to the DSD uh, podcast, Jay. And for... For our, our audience who who isn't aware already, um, we've got our friend here, our good buddy Jay Scott, host of Jay Scott Outdoors, which is the number one Western hunting and fishing podcast. Um, and Jay is not only host of Jay Scott Outdoors, but he's a guide with his partner, um, Dar Colburn and Colburn and Scott Outfitters out of, are you guys based out of Scottsdale, Arizona? Yeah, so I live in Scottsdale and Dar lives in North Phoenix. We typically just tell people we're in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and that's kind of where we're based out of. Okay. And can you tell us uh tell us tell us what you do? Yeah, so I do a number of things when my, when people ask me the question my wife kind of shakes her head and looks at her watch <laughs> like, "Okay, how much time you got?" <laughs> so I'll try and put it in a in a nutshell for you, but uh uh, I, I'm a real estate investor by trade. Uh, I got my real estate license back in 1997 and I'm still, uh, buy and sell, uh, real estate. Uh, but I love to hunt and fish and I've, uh, been a guide 
since also since 1997, so now over 20 years. Uh, and Dar and I have guided together, and 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 we hunt together, and uh, pretty much hunt and fish together. So guiding was just a a perfect part of being a hunter and and a guy that likes to fish. One of the reasons that uh, you know really got me to wanting to get my guides license in the state of Arizona. It's kind of hard to get tags for big game animals. Uh, as you know, we have great elk hunting and sheep hunting and mule deer hunting, what have you. Uh, so I wanted to become a guide so I could spend more time in the field. Uh, and now, you know, 20 plus years later, uh, I love it every bit as much, if not more than I did. Uh, then uh, we have a business that we focus on uh, coos deer hunting in Sonora, Mexico. Uh, we also do Gould's turkey hunts uh, in Sonora, Mexico, and we've been operating down there for, tw- this was my 21st season uh, in January, uh, finishing the, the uh, tur- uh, excuse me, the gu- um, coos deer hunts. And I also do elk, bighorn sheep, uh, I'm a ranch manager September and October uh, in Colorado of a place called the Ot Six Ranch, which is in South Central Colorado. We have uh, really good elk hunting um, there, and it's uh, owned by a private family. Uh, it's kind of their private hunting place, and I'm the hunting manager. And uh, I'm a turkey nut, though. The springtime is when I get to chase turkeys, uh, and it seems like the last handful of years – uh, most of my turkey hunting has taken place down in Mexico for about a month's period. I do uh, Gould's turkey hunts down there in Sonora, Mexico. So that's I also have a podcast that runs kind of hand in hand with the outfitting business and with the hunting and fishing. Uh, I started four years ago, a little over four years ago, uh, February of 2015 and um, have 559 episodes as of yesterday. And uh, so, yeah, that keeps me busy. Wow! Yeah, you're, That's you're incredible. <laughs> no. What are you? What are you doing? Your hundred fifty nine. What are you doing in your spare time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm guessing he doesn't sleep very much. Yeah. Yeah, That's, my wife kind of shakes her head at, at um, my pace is is pretty rapid at everything I do. Uh, we tend to go at everything. You know, I I fish in the summer as well. Uh, own a couple of uh, my own fly fishing rafts. And uh, we, my wife and I spend, we have a place in the Roaring Fork Valley uh, in central Colorado, kind of between Glenwood Springs and Aspen. And uh, I love to fly fish. So, you know, pretty much once our water runs off in, in late June, I'll be fishing all of July and August, uh, kind of getting, you know, prepped and then uh, ready for elk season starting September 1st. So, yeah, it's a hunting and fishing is what I love to do. That's my passion. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Well, um, we definitely want to get into uh, some of your amazing trophy big game hunts and and um, podcasting a little later, but um, we're we're really excited to talk to you about uh, your your Goulds hunts. And you know, one of the things um, that's so interesting to me is I, I just I I don't think that most of our audience Jay knows much about Gould's turkeys. I mean, I certainly don't. I've never hunted them before. I know that they have a fairly limited uh, geographical range. Um, t- tell us about the Gould's wild turkey. Yeah, they're an amazing bird, um, and I highly urge any of the listeners, if you get a chance, uh, definitely go 
uh, on a Gould's turkey hunt or at least go observe the Goulds. They're, they're a phenomenal bird. But yeah, a guy named Jay Goulds uh, in 1856, uh, while traveling in Mexico, discovered the birds. And I don't know exactly how that works, but they named the birds after him. Uh, and those Goulds birds, they're the, the fifth uh, recognized wild turkey subspecies. Obviously, we've got you know, the Osceola in Florida, the Eastern Rio Grande and the Merriam. Uh, the Goulds is the fifth recognized uh, subspecies. They're found in Arizona, New Mexico and northern Mexico. There's five or six states in northern Mexico that have the Goulds turkeys. Uh, the biggest amount of the population uh, is in Mexico. Uh, you know, we hunt them primarily in Sonora and Chihuahua, Mexico. There's also birds in Durango, uh, as well as three or four other states. Um, the Goulds themselves have the largest body frame of any of the five North American wild turkeys. Uh, they have longer legs. They have a larger feet. Their toes on them are amazing. Uh, and they have I would say about an inch and a half to two inch larger or longer primary tail feathers. And what they're known for to be able to differentiate them between other birds is they're a lot like a Merriam's in the way they look with the, you know, the lighter uh, uh, white band of, uh, uh, you know, on the, the tail fan. But that actual band is almost pure white in most situations um, the only thing that will get them a little bit dusty is, is what I call dusty is if you've, you've got, uh, a lot of terrain down there is kind of real dry and dusty and they'll literally dust their feathers. And sometimes it will take that pure white, uh, and, and give it a little bit of a dusty look. But if you compare it to a Merriam's, uh, definitely a lot whiter and, I can't tell you how many times people have come and hunted with me. And the first time they see a Gould's turkey in full strut, it literally takes their breath away. I've literally heard, I've been sitting, you know, in a tree behind a grown man multiple times and literally heard them go <gasps> when they see it. Uh -huh. Because the tail fan is so big, first of all, but then you add that two inch band it's it's an amazing sight for sure. Mm -hmm. now, oh wow! When when you say awesome. two inch band, you're talking about the uh, the band of of feathers that's white. Yes. Okay, that's yes. two inches and broader on a Goulds than it than it is say on a Merriam's, which tend to be not only narrower but more blondish in color. Yeah, and if you take the, you take the whitest color Merriam, which there are some real white colored looking Merriam, white tip Merriams. Mm -hmm. um, Goulds are ever bit that white, if not more. Um, you know, the contrast a lot of times in the, you know, a lot of the birds live kind of in the desert, but they can live anywhere from say, you know, 3,500 feet up to, you know, 9,000 feet. But the contrast is amazing. The white band is, is absolutely spectacular. And, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, hunt birds for big spurs and they hunt birds for big beards. Uh, Goulds are not known for having very big spurs. They live in the rocks. They live in the mountains. Uh, they also drag those beards on the ground. And I think those beards break off. I mean, a beard, a, a good beard is going to be, you know, 11 inches on a Goulds. Average beard, I'm going to say, is in that, you know, eight and a half to 10 inch range. Uh, as well as the spurs. I mean, every year we get them 
over an inch, but it's it's pretty darn rare to get much over an inch on a Goulds, and a lot of them are in that half inch, uh, you know, half inch to three quarter inch uh, type spurs. But what I was going to say is, most people that come down and hunt with me, like they really want to get that, you know, perfect fan, yeah. um, and that's what they're after. Hmm. And Jay, does it seem like they're blacker in color? Then, you know, it's funny you say that because I believe they are. And I believe the contrast with the black and the white is what makes them so spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they when you when you get the sun on them, they do have that iridescent copper and iridescent green look to the feathers, which it never I try and take photos of it. It never actually comes out very good in a photo what it actually is in person. But it, the coloring is spectacular. But. I think that's what makes them so spectacular is you've got the black and you've got the white uh-huh. and you, you throw in their head colors, you know, obviously they change, but you know, you throw in the red, white, and blue. I mean, it's, it makes for a spectacular, um, scene. I I've tried to, we've been doing Goulds full time since 2010 and we try and video every hunt. I've got over 125 uh, videos on uh, YouTube. Uh, that you can also find on our website and if you've seen any of the videos you'll see exactly what i'm talking about how spectacular of a bird they are Hmm. um you know going back to a question that you had had about where are they and i i said they're found in northern mexico one thing i want to point out is arizona uh i'm going to say 15 or 20 years ago uh it's probably closer to 20 the uh, arizona game and fish and the national wild turkey federation uh, reintroduced goulds into the sky islands of Arizona and mostly well all in southern Arizona and they're called sky island mountain chains in other words you'll just have the desert floor and then all of a sudden these mountains just rise up to seven eight thousand feet and they have done an amazing job with the reintroduction of the goulds turkey as much so as we've got 86 don't quote me on that 86 85 to 90 permits now in the state of arizona for goulds uh in these different uh mountain chains and it's just so nice to see a bird that was at one time they didn't hunt them at all now we have you know the opportunity for sportsmen to go out there and actually witness and and harvest those birds uh you know hats off to the nwtf and the arizona game and fish department for for making that happen Wow! Yeah, absolutely. That's that's cool. really cool. And did you say that that they can be found in uh, portions of New Mexico as well? Yeah, there's actually um, those Sky Island mountain chains that I'm talking about. There's some that kind of run into New Mexico, and now we're talking southwestern New Mexico, and they have a small population in some of their different mountain ranges. Not near as many as in Arizona, and certainly not as many as in Mexico. But they also have a few public permits uh, in southwestern New Mexico. Now, the, the public permits for Arizona and New Mexico are extremely hard to get, as you can, as you can imagine. I tell people they're like drawing a desert bighorn sheep hunt here in Arizona. I mean, they're virtually impossible to get. For non-residents, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, takes 18, 15, 18, 20 years to draw. Even residents, I know residents with you know, 18, 20 points that have still never drawn a Gould's tag. Uh, and, and that kind of 
you know, plays into me loving the Goulds so much. I wanted to be around them more. So I started the business, uh, Goulds Turkey hunt.com, uh, is, is, is the domain name. And, uh, we do our hunts down in Mexico and it's amazing because, uh, Mexico, the Goulds Turkey is very, very plentiful. Uh, like I said, all over, uh, you know, five or six different States there in Northern Mexico. And is that because um, the populations just always thrive there? Or has the NWTF been involved in uh, maintaining you know, that population? It's a good question. I think that's where the species originated. And so I think them branching into Arizona and into New Mexico is just like on the outer edges of their of their fringe territory. You know, like the Sierra Madre Mountains, um, you know, the, the mountains in Chihuahua, the, the mountains that in Sonora that are close to Chihuahua and, you know, that Durango area, that's just, they're plentiful. Um, you know, and a lot of, well, 99.9% of the ground in Mexico is, is private ground. And so I think that has done well for the Goulds in that most of the Goulds are completely protected on private ground where I, I, I hate to say it, but I think if it was, you know, very much a public country i don't know that they would have had the capability to control that and we may not have goulds i think having private land is actually probably been great for the goulds turkey because it's allowed them to have some sanctuary uh and and not you know just get harvested uh without any control from the from the general public Uh uh-huh um and now you mentioned that they they tend to be found at, at higher elevations is that right well, they can be found anywhere from, I would say, 3,500 feet up to, you know, eight, 9,000 feet in some of the higher mountain ranges in Arizona and the higher mountain ranges in Mexico. Normally, I'm going to say they're in that four to 6,000 range. Um, most of the country that we hunt in Sonora, Mexico, fall in that, you know, 4,000 to 6,000 foot range. Uh, but there are lots of birds that inhabit that seven, eight thousand, you know, uh, ponderosa pine type country. Uh, they call them Chihuahuan pines in some in some of the places down there. But uh, I mean, it, they're an amazing bird because they can adapt to you know thirty five hundred foot of you know river bottoms and and desert floors to you know nine thousand foot of you know the thickest pines and and beautiful forests you've ever seen. Uh huh. Now I've seen some footage of some of your guys' hunts, and I mean it's hard to tell for sure, but it, it to to my eye looks like there's um, a, a lot of the hunts. You're you're actually in in hardwoods. It almost looks like oaks to me. Is that? Yeah, we're in a ton of oaks. Um, we've got all kinds of different oaks down in in Mexico, and most of that is in that four to six thousand foot range. Okay. Uh, but tons of oaks, sycamores. Uh, you know. Um, what I would call ponderosa pines uh, and but but tons of oaks even some mesquite you'll even see some uh, uh, cactus in our videos uh, and the different properties uh, you know I have 30 different properties down in Mexico for cool uh, coos and goulds we roughly hunt about 15 or 16 different properties for goulds and they have an amazing uh, variety of terrain for sure. And you said you hunt them for about a month each spring. 
Yeah, so the season in Mexico is basically from the end of March uh, through the end of May. Uh, I only like to go down there and hunt them during kind of what I call the peak gobbling season. And it, it kind of varies from area in area to area within Mexico, but I'm going to say much like Arizona, the kind of the peak gobbling season uh, for where we hunt is roughly April 15th to May 15th. Uh, a lot of people ask me, you know, when is the best time to go down? I tell them they gobble as good on the 15th of April as they do on the 15th of May. And in between, I believe because they don't get any pressure, they're a bird that doesn't see those peaks and valleys of gobbling or gets real hinned up. They're real prone to gobble. They're real prone to strutting. Uh, they're real uh, prone to coming into the calls, beating up the decoys. And, you know, that, that brings up something. I've been using the DSD decoys down there since I started. And I've been able to capture, and even some of, some of our guides have been able to capture some just absolutely amazing footage of birds actually actively engaging with the decoys and just beating them up, you know, n knocking them down standing on top of them uh you know if you watch any of the videos um that we have on our on our youtube channel you'll see exactly what i'm talking about it's they're they're an amazing bird because they love to gobble they love to strut and they love to beat up the decoys <laughs> i i've seen quite a few of those videos and um you do a great job capturing them Jay and I can tell I can tell that you just really truly love to be there and you can, you enjoy the the hunt just as much as an observer as you do you know the shooter um, if not more and um, you know one of the the hunts that I thought was was so cool that Scott just reminded me of was one where uh, I think you had a an archer with you and the guy put an arrow actually <laughs> threw the bird. I think it even stuck in the decoy. Yeah. And the bird just kept on attacking the decoys, didn't even realize that it had been shot. So I have two stories about that, uh, several more, but two that are distinct. One is the video you're talking about where um, a, a guy that guides with us, Chris Rowe, uh, Rowe Hunting Resources, he, he took um, the hunter out, and Lance draws back his bow and he shoots and just absolutely pinwheels this bird to the decoy. So if anybody's listening, picture the arrow going in and into the bird. So the arrow is literally like sticking out and he's still pecking and beating on the decoy. And he literally, the bird has to pull himself off and basically the, come out the end of the arrow and realize, oh, I'm hit, and then he walks off and 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 expires. That's one story that just blows. That's me the away. one I was talking about. It was incredible. It, oh, it's it, and the thing is, like, it's at like eight or nine yards. It's really close up footage, and I mean, it's it's something. There's a there's several other instances. Uh, there's a guy named Bob Griego. He's a doctor here in town. Uh, I took him down, and with his bow. He shoots, so the bird is up next to a DSD Jake, and he's fighting the Jake, and Bob's in the in a blind, and he's bow hunting. He draws back, and he shoots, and he shoots the bird right through the waddles. And the bird literally is pecking and fighting the Jake decoy, 
and this is kind of gruesome, but there is literal a string of blood squirting out onto the decoy, and he's still he's still fighting the decoy, dead on his feet, doesn't even know he's hit. It I have to send it to you. It is some amazing footage. And then last year, my nephew Jay he shot one with the bow, and he shoots I don't know seventy five pounds. He boom whips right through it. The bird like hops, takes three steps, comes back to the decoy, keeps beating on the decoy. Then he starts wobbling around, and Jay shoots him again. It's uh, there; those decoys are amazing because it they elicit a response from Gould's turkeys that are amazing. And those Goulds are very hardy, and they they're feisty. And once they get to fighting, like they're dead. Like those these birds are dead on their feet, and they're still fighting the decoy. Hmm. Huh. So um, I think it sounds like it's safe to say that you're a big fan of using a gobbler decoy. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I hunt Merriam's, I hunt Rio's. I haven't had a chance to hunt Eastern or Osceola yet, but, uh, you know, I've been using DSD decoys, I want to say close to 10 years now. I, I'd be curious when you guys came out with your first decoy, you guys would know better than anybody. But I remember getting them and I remember thinking, you know, for one, how durable they are, but number two, they're in unbelievably realistic. And especially, I would say, when they first came out, the comparison to whatever else was on the market, I would say you guys have some competitors that, you know, they make a, re- a, a realistic-looking decoy. I still argue there's nothing more realistic than the DSD decoys. So I've been using, you know, the hens. As soon as you guys came out with a full strutter, um, I put the real tail fan on it and have had amazing response with the full strutter. Uh, but I will tell you the the decoy that just, I mean, makes these ghouls come just go out of their mind is the three quarter Drake, uh, Jake. Hmm. Uh, and you know, just, I, you know, I think I tagged you guys in a Facebook post last night where there's actually a bird grabs the DSD Jake opens its beak, grabs it, by the head and literally starts just yanking it around it ends up what you didn't see in that video he yanks it off the stake and continues to beat on it for 30 minutes um i'm a huge proponent of the jake and the strutter i just got uh three jake strutters uh in the mail that i'm excited to try and the the one thing that i'm going to like about trying these is they look like they're about 25% smaller than the full strutter. And there's several things that I like about that. I think having a little bit smaller, you're not going to intimidate. Any bird is going to see that strutter, see that it's a smaller body size and be like, Oh, I'm going to come over there and kick that thing's butt. So I'm going to be interested to see if there's any better response to the three quarter strutter compared to the full strut, because The full strutter's just been an absolute game changer as far as bringing birds into the set. And I think the three-quarter strutter's going to just blow my mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, I don't know um, how often you guys are are switching setups and running and gunning, um, but it's nice having that that smaller, more packable frame, you know, size decoy. And, well. and the thing I saw yesterday when I was pulling them out of the boxes is with the wing structure that you've built on there, um, like the full strutter has a place where you can actually put real wings if you want to. 
Um, a lot of times when I'm running and gunning, I just don't have time to do that. Yep. So I think that smaller size, certainly on a run and gun situation, that three quarter strutter is going to be, um, is going to be money. I can already tell you, it's, I cannot wait to get behind the camera and get some quality footage of them just destroying that three quarter or the, uh, Jake, Jake Strutter, Jake, yeah. Jake Strutter, yeah. We know Jake what Strutter. you meant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, Jay, I've seen so many pictures and videos of people hunting with our Strutter, with our original Strutter, where they didn't put the wings on, and that just drives me nuts, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> You're a purist. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't handle it. And then I think Sean Stahl probably, you know, talked me into it, um, just saying that we've got to come out with a Strutter with wings on it, and I'm, I'm glad we finally did. And I, I, I feel for everyone that... Uh, you know that this had to had to deal with our strutter um in the, under those circumstances and stuff like that and i also admire all the people that go to the go to the trouble to put the wings on and put them on right and all that stuff but now they don't have to i can't tell you how many times i mean you've probably seen some of my videos i'll be setting up in the pitch black dark you know and i've got you know i'm trying to get hunters set up i'm trying to get everything all dialed in and i'm i'm notorious for getting out there and you know roosting birds and like literally getting set up right on them and trying to be quiet and all it'll get light and i'll look over at the full strutter i'll be like what in the world i put the wings on backwards or you know oh, they're geez. angled all cut and <laughs> dave's probably just just <laughs> cringing when he sees the video yeah but um that the full strutter is an amazing tool. If anybody out there has any doubt at all, all I would say is, you know, get your real tail fan, throw, throw that full strutter out there and watch, you know, watch it happen. Now there's certain things that I kind of like to do with that full strutter, um, which may be totally different than the way you guys like to do it. But I typically like to turn that fan. If I know a bird, let's say I know a bird's coming from 12 o'clock. I want to turn that fan and face that fan right at the bird. So in other words, if he's coming, he thinks he's sneaking in and the bird, the strutter has his tail fan facing the bird. What I see is those birds come in real aggressively because they, they know that the strutter can't see them. Then they come around for, you know, come around to the side and they come face to face. The only thing about having them, you know, the fan facing, say, dead at the bird is if you're an archer, you might want to turn that at a 45 uh, or even a 90 so that you get more of a broadside shot. But for, uh, what I found is if you ever face that fan right the direction that they're coming from, they'll tend to just run at it and they run up fast on it is what I've found because they think that that strutter doesn't know they're coming. So in uh -huh. other words, you're facing the, de the decoy towards you. I face the head towards me. Okay. Um, or, or I shouldn't say me. I face the head towards my shooter's position. The purest would probably be at, uh, I guess it would be a 90. So it's, per it's perpendicular. Um, but the only thing is then th they seem to always, in my mind, come straight from the, basically behind the fan. So, so the, the, the bird that's approaching is going to come in the back door and as if the strutter can't see them, then they circle around and come face to face. And that's when your guy gets your shot, you know, mm -hmm. the shooter gets their shot. Right on. Yeah. And, and I personally, uh, like to do exactly the same thing, um, or or at least maybe slightly different. I 
I should say I generally um, have a pretty good idea of what direction I expect that the bird or birds will be coming from, and I just try to face the decoy away from him. It doesn't always mean that I can um, point the decoy toward toward myself or, or my shooter, um, but I do at least try to get the fan the or the, the, the strutter facing the opposite direction of correct where, where yeah. i expect the bird to come from yeah yeah and and there's i mean there's we could probably debate this till we're blue in the face because you know your head is painted so well that the color of the head means different things to birds and what have you um but in general i would say if they think they can sneak up on that strutter uh, without being detected, they're going to come a lot faster. I've seen it where if the if if the strutters, the full strut decoy's head, is literally turned and facing head on with the bird, I see them coming. But then the birds tend to come a lot slower and strut back and forth, strut back and forth. Whereas I like them to come and come around it. So once they make that hook around, so now they're face to face with the strutter, they're more in range than if they hang up out there, you know, 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards, you know, if you're an archer, um, face to face, cause they're trying to kind of size the bird up. You can get them a lot closer. I think if you, if you face the butt of the fan, like basically the butt of the Turkey right at where you think they're coming from. Yep. The other yeah. thing is the submissive hen. That's been a huge, uh, I've gotten some incredible footage with the submissive hen and the submissive hen. I typically set at a, uh, perpendicular to the shooter so that when the bird, the gobbler comes to mount the submissive hen or the mating hen, they're both the, you know, the ones that lay yeah. on the ground, right. they're going to be, so they're going to be at a total 45 or I guess it'd be a 90 so that the, whether an archer or whether a shotgunner, they'll, they can shoot the head without blowing up the tail fan. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And they always come in, in my mind, they always come in from the behind of the submissive that, you know, they start clawing and get up on there. And then that gives the archer a perfect broadside shot. It gives the shotgun hunter a perfect shot at the head. And even if you have to cluck or something to get them to stick their head up, I mean, they're just sitting ducks on that submissive or mating hen. And, you know, when the, when you have those, those ground hens, um, you know, so, sideways like that, perpendicular to it, and then a tom gets on top of them, they typically kind of bob their head and it's, it's kind, of, kind of facing you for, for a few seconds at a time and it's facing almost directly away for a few seconds at a time at a time and that always gives you a good opportunity to draw your bow yeah i mean it's it's an those um you call them ground decoys you know the the submissives they're basically for the listeners out there that don't know them they're flat on the bottom so in other words they lay flat on the ground and it's the perfect position that a gobbler recognizes as that hen is wanting to be mated a lot of times i'll set a jake DSD three-quarter Jake up and I'll set that that submissive hen and first of all they go over and just absolutely blow up on the Jake and then once they've either knocked the Jake over or beat it into uh, you know beat it into oblivion 
then they'll go, okay, and they'll saunter over and they'll just get on the back of that um, submissive hen and they'll go to town. And I mean, nothing more fun than shooting them right off of that sucker. Oh, it's it's awesome. You know, one thing I would tell you guys is the motion, the, the uh, what is it, the motion pair, the Jake that bobs up and down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, a perfect representation. And I, I need to send you guys some videos of, I mean, you guys nailed it on that. The only reason that I don't particularly use that is it's it's actually kind of funny. I would use the heck out of it. Our ground in Mexico is so stinking hard mm -hmm. that I can't I can't tell you how many stakes I bend just because our ground literally you can hardly push a stake in one inch. I mean, you guys hunt up in the northwest where the ground, you know, you're probably wetter than anything and you can push those stakes all the way, you know, twenty four inches all the way into the ground. I have a hard enough time getting a stake an inch into the ground, so I haven't tried that motion. But I can tell you, you guys nailed – I saw it at the shows, and I've seen the videos. I mean, you nailed it. I've just always haven't used it because I just know there's absolutely no way I can get that into the ground. Hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, in order to run that run that cord, um, to anchor that cord, you, you, that there's just no other way to do it. You, you do have to be able to get the – um, the little eye stakes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Stakes those, those, into the ground. I mean, it's a perfect setup where you can get those eye stakes flush with the ground. So the birds actually don't hang up in the cord and it allows you to pull it and give enough tension on it. But I mean, there, on, even with a hammer, I couldn't get those stakes in the ground. So that's, you know, I would say that's the only reason why you don't see me with footage of that, the, 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 uh, motion pair, is just the ground so stinking hard. I mean, it's literally like concrete. Well, and it's funny that you should say that because I wish that we didn't have so much stinking <laughs> grass here. Um, you know, we get so much rain and the grass yeah. grows so fast by, that by the time our season opens on April 15th, it's usually it's usually too, too tall for us um, to use either the yep. submissive hen or the mating hen, which are the two decoys you were just discussing you know because um unfortunately they have limited visibility being a decoy that lies flat on its belly but i have you know there's been a couple instances where you know i was hunting um you know, pastures that were were kept you know grazed down, down. By, yep. by livestock um or i was you know maybe hunting along a um you know, a gravel road or, or, or something along those lines. And I have been able to use, you know, the submissive or mating hen, mating hen being my preference between the two, I guess now. Um, but it's just so cool to have a bird mounted on top of that decoy because, um, it's, it's such a sturdy decoy that, um, I've watched birds for, 10, 15, 20 plus minutes, not leave that decoys back. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and the, and the thing about that, Brad, that I think is, is so good is they're clawing and doing their thing, mating, you know, doing their best to mate that they're attracting. I can't tell you how many times I've had birds actually on the mating hen and doing their thing and other gobblers see it or hear it and they come running. I mean, mm -hmm. absolutely come running 
And so here you've got, let's say you have a bird that's a, you know, let's say you're going after, you know, a, a older bird and you've got a younger bird and it's just sitting there. It's just mating, mating, mating. I mean, if you had any mature birds around in the area and they see or hear that, they know exactly what that motion is. And they're going to come. I've had them where they come straight into the setup, knock that bird off, and then they take over. <laughs> um, and that's what I think makes it such a uh, dynamic piece is it, it, it not only gets the bird you're after, but so many times it gets multiple birds to come to your set. You know, Brad and I have used that as an excuse before, too. Like, we've had people like, well, why would you sit there and watch turkeys do it for like 15 minutes? And we're like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's yeah. it's for the for the hunting. There's a better chance that more birds are going to come in. It has nothing to do with being sick. Or it's anything. research and development. It, it, yeah, yeah exactly. R&D, yeah, R&D yeah. at its we, finest. We tried to look away, but, uh, but we just couldn't. You but, know, one thing, one thing I... Um, forgot to mention, I talked about the gobbler, the full strut um, decoy. I also like to um, actually, if I can, I like to actually face, I, I like to face the hens the direction of the shooter or the direction. If I think the birds are coming from the left, a lot of times I'll face the birds, um, the, the hens, uh, you know, the feeding hen or the upright hens, I'll face them to the right in other words, I want those birds to think that the path of progress of my decoys is, if the birds, I think they're coming from the left, I want them thinking that the, our, my birds, my decoys are going to the right. In other words, it's going to draw them in rather than, hey, I see them facing me. I'll just wait till they walk over to me. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, plus if a bird is strutting. Uh, and the and he knows the hens can see him. Then he's just waiting for them to come to him. Correct. Uh, but if he knows that they they they're facing the opposite direction, he's not going to just stand there and strut, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Right exactly. on. Yep. Um, so then, Jay, do you how how do you hunt ghouls for the most part? Are you doing them most of your hunts off the roost, or are you guys running and gunning, or do you do a little bit of both? Yeah, so we run our hunts basically on a four-day hunt structure. It's really three and a half days. And so we usually arrive, uh, we leave the border at around 8 a.m. and we get to the ranches uh, midday. We have lunch and then we go set up. So we're doing an afternoon set. And so a lot of times afternoon, I'll run and gun, let's say, you know, three, four, five o'clock. I'll be kind of just calling and walking and calling and trying to cover ground. And then a lot of times I'll be in meadows or by tanks or places where I know that the turkeys are going to be close to going to roost. And then I'll make a set. I'll set the decoys out and kind of get ready and get settled. Um, and then depending on what happens in that afternoon, whether we have birds come into the set, we get shots or what have you. Uh, if we if we don't get anything going and it's kind of really evident that, hey, you know, w we don't have any birds in this area, I'll just pick all the deeks up and, and kind of typically running gun trying to roost a bird i'm a big proponent on roosting birds uh in arizona and in mexico uh it's we can hunt all day i know there's some states out there that you know you can only hunt till noon or one o'clock or even four o'clock california used to be four i think they changed it i think you can hunt all day now you can um but i love roosting birds and it's something that 
I would urge anybody out there that um, maybe is getting into turkey hunting, if you can become someone that really knows how to pinpoint and roost birds and, and become very good and diligent about it, your success as a turkey hunter, in my mind, is going to go way up. Um, and I take it so far as like, I want to know the exact tree that they're in. Um, I want to be able to come back to the ex and have my setup all planned out in my mind where I want to put my decoys, where I want to put my shooter, where I want to sit and be able to get back to that spot in the pitch black dark without making like, a sound without making a sound. I want to be able to get all the decoys out of the bags, which that's one thing I love about your bags. They're real quiet. Um, and, and also when you're putting the, the, the stake in the ground, when you're putting the bird on top there, you know, some of the cheap decoys squeak and make all kinds of what I would call human noises. Your decoys just slide right on top of the stake and, you know, I've, I've used them for years and, and they're, they're the best on the market in my opinion. Um, but I'm a huge proponent of roosting birds, which if you got birds roosted, that means you've got your morning plan all set up. Then once, whether we kill birds off the roost or what have you, we then pick up the decoys and then it becomes run and gun um, and just covering country trying to strike a bird. Once we strike a bird, then, you know, obviously we have to determine, you know, how, how far away is he? How much can we get away with? How close do we need to move to him? Uh, but all our hunts are very call oriented. Um, you know, most of my hunters are shotgun hunters. So we're, we're running and gunning. We do do some run and gun with our archers, but you know, whether they want to use a blind or if they just want to, you know, use natural cover, um, you know, that's, that's up to them. Uh, and then, you know, usually during the day we take a, a siesta and get lunch and then we start it all over again. So that's kind of how we do it. Awesome. Um, I think that we would, we would get along really well. I, I myself am a huge proponent of hunting birds off the roost too. There's just, there's just something about it. I love, you know, call me crazy, but I love getting up at three in the morning and, yep, I and, do too. and sneaking in there, you know, and, and trying to plan it all out the evening before, after you put the bird on the limb, trying to figure out, okay, where exactly am I going to set up so that I have the best chance that this bird is going to fly down and, and take a path, um, from where he touches down to my decoys that's the path of least resistance where he can see my decoys, where I can be concealed. And how do I get there completely undetected first thing in the morning? Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the, I love turkey hunting. I love everything about it. But one thing I really like is all of the preparation, yep. all of, all of the analyzing, all of the strategizing, you know, literally I'll get as crazy as like, I'll sneak in there, I'll roost them, and then I'll sit there in the pitch black dark so I can sneak out without them. Like some guys, you know, it's gray light and they're like walking out all the way till it's dark. And then I'll count steps and I'll be looking around. I'll be like, I need to walk from here back to that um, big dead snag. And so that, you know, when I get up and it's dark, I count my steps to that big snag and then I turn around and I look, okay, I need to be at that group of trees. So even when I come in in the morning, I know it's 101 steps and that should put me right where I need to be set up. And then I already have, you know, where I'm going to put the strutter, where I'm going to put the Jake, where I'm going to put the submissive in. 
Like I have it all planned out. And I feel like if you can be, if, if guys could be more diligent in their roosting, their success off the roost in the morning is goes up tenfold. Oh yeah. Like I can't tell you just, if you never made a call, but you were able to get your geek set up in a good position where the birds up on the limb can see those birds you basically could never call, sit back and just listen to the, all of the tree calling sequence, listen to the whole show, watch them fly right into your set and pull the trigger. And you never made a sound. Oh man. And isn't it nerve wracking too? Um, just trying to get in there is absolutely close as you possibly can get. And, and it's just, you know, they're just sitting up there, just, you know, dead asleep with their head under their wing, but you feel like they're just up there looking at you and you're, oh man, it's intense. It's so risky, but it's just so worth it when, you know, when you pull it off. I mean, yeah. So Jay, could a guy make like how elk sounds or, or deer sounds, or is there something that you could do? Like, instead of trying to sneak and sneak and sneak and be dead silent i mean is there anything that the turkey a turkey would hear naturally all through the night walking down below them like a javelina or something yeah i mean i get that question a lot and what i tell people is if i had my preference i would not make any sounds at all Mm -hmm. if if all of a sudden you hear a hand you know like kind of like semi-alarm like you could moo like a cow you could you could make deer sound. You know, if you're hunting Merriams, you could you could let out you know some cow calls. The 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 mooing like a cow seems to really work and settle those birds down. But I would tell I would tell anyone if you can if you can not make a sound, that's going to be best. If you feel like the hens are on to you and you can moo a little bit like a cow. Uh, I've seen that work and settle them right down. Um, but kind of going back to what Brad says, I'm notorious. Everyone gets so mad at me for going so early because I feel like there's a time that you can get in there, pitch black, get everything set up, sit with your back at the tree or get your blind set up and just sit there. And if you're 30 or 40, 50 minutes ahead of time, it almost like it just settles yep. down and they forget yep. about it. I they mean, totally, I've literally, yep. I've had birds that are like, I know they hear something, yep. but I'm there 40 minutes before they even start making their first, you know, tree calls. And they just settle down because they hear stuff, especially in Mexico. I mean, there's stuff that'll eat them all the time. And between coyotes, mountain lions, I guess that's anywhere, but I mean, the ground's so country, they hear stuff, cows, horses they hear stuff walking by them all the time um i think we're a little more sensitive i let me let me back up i think we're a lot more gun shy or we're a lot more um antsy that oh they're gonna hear us than they actually are i mean if if you sat up on their limb all night and listened to what they probably have to hear day in and day out you'd probably be way less cautious i know i probably would but you know, they, they hear stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of, kind of what I was thinking. So then what, um, do you call most of the time and just, just like some, whatever, like really soft calling? You know, I love Turkey calling. Um, I always have, I love elk calling any, any, any interaction. I, you know, I hate to even tell you guys this, but 
I've never been duck hunting or goose hunting. Now, in my defense, <laughs> there's like three puddles of water in the whole state of Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be that much better then. <laughs> Our duck and goose hunting is not, um, it'd be like, you know, you, it's just not great. So I've just, it's something I've always wanted to do, but I've never done it. Um, but I do love to call coyotes. I love to call elk. I love to call um, turkeys and I'm a student of the game. I love, um, I, I love listening to my favorite thing is getting in early, getting set, putting my back to a tree, turning the camera on. And I love catching from the very first sound they make to the very last sound they make. I love hearing the whole sequence. Um, I I'm, I'm an adequate caller. Uh, I would not say that I'm anything great. I'm good enough to get a lot of birds killed. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I love calling. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge guy with friction calls. I'm not a huge mouth caller. Uh, I just don't sound that great. I think I sound pretty good on a box call. Um, I don't get real fancy with my calls. Um, basically just good, good old sweet yelping. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I have had the, um, fortune of being able to hunt with, uh, last year with Billy Yargis. He's, I think a three time NWTF, uh, grand national champion, um, spectacular guy, just absolutely just loved listening to him talk and communicate with the turkeys. Uh, I've also, um, had the fortune of having Scott Ellis, uh, who's a, he's won the, uh, head to head NWTF three times listening to him call turkeys and you know when you get around these guys that are really really good um it's it's mind-blowing the amount of sounds that these guys can make it's it's just something something to something to uh, i i wish everybody could uh see it or hear it um i'm fortunate to sit there with the camera and basically capture all of it uh and those videos are on my youtube channel as well and i i feel very fortunate to hear some of those guys and their amazing calling Oh, that's awesome. So, and then uh, what does a Gould's gobble sound like compared to... So, I'm I'm not an expert in Osceola or Easterns, but what my guys, you know, I've helped so many people complete their Royal Slams and their World Slams. A lot of guys come from uh, east of the Mississippi, or east of Texas. There are tons of guys from the southeast, Pennsylvania, uh, all over back there, and they say the the gobble is more like a barnyard type bird gobble. It's kind of a wobble, wobble, wobble. Um, they, they say like if an Eastern gobbled, a, a Goulds would, you know, basically fall off the limb scared to death because of the rattle that the, the Easterns have. It's, it's, I would say it's kind of a cross between a Rio and a Merriam's gobble. Um, you know, definitely not just, earth-shattering gobble for sure it's more of a you know it's kind of choppy uh, and high pitch choppy and high pitch kind of a cross between a Merriam's and a rio is the best way i can describe it okay and you said they're overall they're pretty aggressive oh my gosh i you know part of the reason i think to to be fair to the other four subspecies is they just don't get any pressure Mm -hmm. so the the ranches that i have nobody else calls the turkeys the the mexican guys down there they don't even own a turkey call so no one is messing with them and so when we go down and hunt them literally it's like 
it's it's amazing because they're not expecting any uh you know they just don't get hunting pressure so they you know they're very callable they're extremely showy um i don't even know if that's a word but i always tell people they're a showy bird they love to strut almost you can almost bet that if they're coming in to a call they're going to be strutting the way in uh they're going to be gobbling i've had guys say i've never heard a turkey gobble so much um so now you guys know kind of why i've just fallen in love with them is they're they're an amazing bird that doesn't get pressure and they're a beautiful bird uh and they love to beat the decoys i mean i i, I have hours and hours of video of literally birds beating on the decoys until I'll give you a story. I had a doctor from California come out and hunt in Mexico with me. Bird flew down off the limb. We had birds all around. This one bird honed in on the full strutter decoy. He ends up spinning it around, jumping on it, knocking off several of the wings, breaking the tail fan uh, literally for 25 minutes. Then he finally gets it off the stake, literally knocks the whole stake over. Then he proceeds to peck the eyeball of the decoy until all of, I don't know if you guys paint them or what, but it, one eyeball was a completely different color after the bird. And this went on for 30 minutes. Finally, the doctor, he's a doctor. He was just laughing and he's like, I'm going to have to shoot him. I said, okay. So I got him to stick his head up and he shot him. And I got up there and literally the eyeball was like pecked out. It was oh unreal. Well, that's brutal. Jay, uh, to answer your question. Yes, we do paint them. Um, and you can um, you can recondition that that eyeball real easy by just getting some black glossy enamel model okay. paint. Just go to okay. any model shop. Testers makes it um, for about oh geez two dollars a bottle. You can get um, what will uh, pretty much be like a lifetime supply of touch up eye paint, um, and yeah. then just take a little fine paintbrush and. And, and brush it on your eyeballs. I, I do it every couple of years to recondition all my eyes on my decoys and it keeps them looking, you know, nice, nice and wet and, and lifelike. Yeah. I need to do that. Um, as well as I was going to ask you, um, some of my decoys, I was looking in the garage yesterday. Some of them are 10 years old, nine or 10 years old. And do you ever go back and touch up? I mean, the, the amount of abuse that I have put these decoys through and my guides throwing them in and out of the ranger and into the trucks and traveling and all that. Um, do you ever, um, uh, recommend to people to touch up any of the paint? And, and if you do, is there a certain type of paint that you would recommend? Dave, you want to take that question? Uh, <laughs> That's a tough one. That is a tough one. The answer one. is I'm, no, don't touch my decoys. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, it's there's not um, there's not a lot of great options on paint um, and paint colors. I mean, there's some... When it comes to the body, there. when it comes to the body of the decoys, a lot different than trying to just paint the eyes, I guess. Is right. Yeah, yeah I was thinking you know? more like some of, the he- some of the heads and stuff might have been you know, literally abused so much by birds and pecked so much. I was just wondering if, you know, like if there's an acrylic paint or something that you could just doll it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, we get that question a lot and I, I don't know because a lot of the, I mean, like I say, I, I know of, um, commercially available airbrush paints that, that work and work, work great. There's, um, polytrans bar and lifetone airbrush paints 
They're available at taxidermy supply companies. And a lot of the taxidermy supply companies also sell brush brushable paints, but they in the brushable paints they just don't have the you know, they don't have great colors as far as head colors and stuff. You it's know, that's just one. that's something that we just really need to we really need to find because that question comes up so much and um I don't really know the know the answer. The the answer is the decoys are ten years old. It's time to buy some new ones, Jake. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, of course, yeah, that's a great option. Um, well, you know, if the decoy's in good shape, otherwise, it it would be nice to uh, it would be nice to. Uh, Scott, our producer, is telling is reminding us that we have paint touch up kits on our website. Uh, and, oh, nice, nice catch there, Scott. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's good. It's good that there's somebody uh, who here actually that, is paying attention here. On. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Got to. Okay, guys, go to the. We're gonna edit that. Go to the uh, DSD Touch Up Paint Kits on the website. Right. <laughs> Scott is laughing hysterically right now. I'm embarrassed because. I, I knew that, and for some reason it eluded me. Yeah, well, same here, because I, I was picturing, like, you know, trying to paint different parts of the decoy or whatever, but, yeah. <laughs> you know what I will say that it, it just blows my mind is if you pick up any one of my decoys, any I don't care which decoy it is, it'll there's shotgun pellets in it. My decoys have been shot, I can't tell you how many times my decoys have been shot my strutters have been shot and they just keep on ticking like literally i've had them we shoot our ghouls typically at about 20 yards and that's one thing i like too is all our shots are literally close um you know and we our archers shoot them at you know 10 to 12 yards but the decoys get just peppered with shotgun pellets and you go up there and you're like i know that thing just got blasted and you shake it, and it's got some pellets in it, but you can't even see where the pellets hit it. Oh, good. And that, that goes to your technology of that blows my mind. Like, literally, it repairs itself before I can even see where the thing was even hit. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like an archery foam target. It is. It's yeah. it's just like that. And, and, you know, anybody that's looking for the most realistic, durable decoys, I mean, I can say without a shadow of out, DSD doesn't pay me a dime, although I accept uh, donations dsd uh, <laughs> uh you guys don't pay me a dime but there's not a better decoy on the market i've i've used them and i love them i there's there's nothing else i can say about them other than i love them that's that's the decoys that i use uh we're so glad that you're that you're having fun i mean you know listening to you talk jay and and it's been this uh same way when we've talked in person, but listening to you talk, you can, we can all just tell how excited you are about how much passion you have about <laughs> hunting in general, but turkeys, you know, turkeys too. I, and so. I know. I mean, here's a guy <laughs> who literally has called in and, and killed or watched, I don't even know how many countless, like dozens of world-class trophy bull Four, elk 400 you know, like 400 plus inch bull elk well and how about he's the sheep? super excited about killing turkeys you, you know, know I, I have mean people on my instagram page all the time they'll send me oh gosh now it's spring now all we're gonna see from you is turkeys and i'm like hey man get over it that's what i love <laughs> like it's springtime it's time to hunt turkeys like that's what we're doing and, and uh, they laugh and they're like you're such a turkey nut it's you know, it's an amazing animal. Um, 
there's so much to turkey hunting with the strategy and the setup and you know decoy placement and all the things that i've learned and and i just i feel like i keep getting better and better and better because i learn every year like oh i've learned that mistake a hundred times jay what are you doing why would you do that do it this way okay you know then the next setup oh it worked perfectly but it, it's they're an amazing animal you talk about elk you talk about some of these other animals I have ever bit as much passion for them. Uh, my wife asked me, she's like, people say, what's your favorite animal to hunt? And she just rolls her eyes. She's like, whatever season it is, that's his favorite animal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's the beauty of it, though, um, for me is all the different animals, different seasons. You kind of get to hunt them for usually about a month's time. Then you move on to the next one. And then fishing season comes up in the summer and then you get to start all the hunting stuff again. And that's what keeps me refreshed. If I was, if I was turkey hunting 12 months out of the year, just like you guys, if there was one thing that you did and that's all you did, you'd eventually get tired of it. You know, I've, I've been so fortunate to enjoy so much different types of hunting and different types of fishing that it just keeps me energized. And I, you know, that's, I'm so grateful to be able to do some of the things that we do, uh, and, and, you know, do them not only for a living, but do them as a, you know, the day that I'm not passionate about it, I'm just going to quit doing it. And I hope that day never comes, but every spring comes and I'm just as fired up this spring as I was the last, as I was the very first spring that I even heard of my first turkey gobble. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so cool. Well, no, that, yeah. I mean, that is really, that is really phenomenal because I mean, again, not to keep bringing up the, the elk, but I mean, I drool when I look at <laughs> all those photos on your website of these like 430 plus inch bulls. And I mean, they just look, they look, they're so massive. They look fake. You, you know, know, it's one of those things though. It's a product of the state that I live in, in Arizona. We have phenomenal elk hunting. Um, you know, so a, a lot of it is I've been around some of the best elk hunting there, there ever was. I've been around through some of the best periods of time for elk hunting. Um, you know, I, I spent 20 years in a row exactly taking the entire month of September off, literally like, um, you know, having girlfriends, you know, where I'm like, Hey, I, I I'm gone. I'm out of here. <laughs> Fortunately, I found a wife that said, I told her, I said, I'm going to take every September off the whole entire month and I'm going to chase elk and film elk. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Fortunately, I found a wife that, that understands it. Um, but you know, it's like anything you spend a bunch of time doing it. You're bound to get a, you know, a few good ones here and there. And then put that with the fact that I live in, you know, what I think is the best state, uh, in the U S for elk. Um, you know, elk hunting is, is, is an exciting, fun thing. Uh, it's, it's something that I don't take for granted. And, you know, when I travel to other states, I learn quickly how good we have it in Arizona. Um, you know, now being over at the Ot 6 ranch in September, uh, I got to spend the, the month of September there, the whole rut on the ranch. And I'm just a I love observing animals. I love seeing them in their natural state. I love watching them do their thing. I love taking, you know, phone scope video of them. I love, you know, taking my big camera and getting 
photos of them. Uh, they're just elk. Elk are a very, very fun animal for sure. They're they're similar to turkeys in in a lot of ways. I mean, as far as the hunting of them, and that's kind of cool. So on that Ot Six Ranch, I know that you were kind of excited about that. I mean, it's 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 a probably a quite a change from from hunting in Arizona as far as the the quality of animals and everything. But you were really excited to to kind of manage that place and and try to improve the herds and all that stuff. And how how is all that going? You know, it's, it's going well. Um, so two years ago, my friend brought, bought the property kind of mid-September uh, two years ago. So I didn't get to the ranch until October 1st, two years ago. Got to see quite a bit of rutting um, pretty much for the first three weeks of October, yeah, pretty much the whole month of October. But I was real curious to come last year and get to see the full month of September and see, you know, basically from September 1st till about October 20th, just running out of control, uh, just crazy. And and I was surprised at the size of bulls that actually showed up on the ranch. Nice. Uh, and and came out of the woodwork of the ranch. Uh, and it's a really really rut intensive place meaning elk come from all over to come there to rut uh and you know they don't get any pressure on the ranch we didn't do any hunting during the rut last year uh and so you know it's just a rut fest just just you know i don't want to ever rule out that you know let's just say i'm taking a break from arizona elk hunting right now uh but i'm i'm in a place where the rut is ever bit as intensive because of the you know the nature of the size of the property uh and it's just an incredible place to to watch elk bugle and and um do their thing Hmm. Uh, so it's going very well i'm looking forward to getting back there this fall uh and we've got a handful of bulls that you know last year was such a drought year in the southwest i was so blown away at the size of some of the bulls compared to what I thought they were going to be, it'll be interesting. We've had a great wet year this year to see if our elk actually put on uh, bigger antlers than they did last year. It's, uh, you know, time will tell. Mm-hmm. Right on. And then on, on sheep hunting, you yourself have drawn a sheep tag, haven't you? Didn't you shoot a desert bighorn one year? So, yeah, so I have not drawn a desert or a Rocky. Okay. Uh, I, I guide for desert bighorn sheep and Rockies, uh, primarily desert bighorns here in Arizona. Our season in Arizona is uh, basically the month of December from, from the first to the end of the month. And I, I've been fortunate since I started in 09 uh, guiding for sheep. Uh, actually, my friend draw that drew the tag in 09, and I've guided every year since. Uh, we've been able to take some auction hunters and some raffle hunters and, and then I try and get one general season hunter every year. Um, desert sheep is one of those things that I absolutely love as well, you know, with coos deer also, but it's a very glassing oriented animal. Uh, they're very photogenic. You can get a lot of video, a lot of photos. Um, you can observe them. I, I just, I've fallen in love with rams. Uh, I was fortunate last year to draw an Alaska Shugatch doll sheep hunt. Okay. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is before I applied for that, I had actually purchased a hunt to hunt the Northwest Territories for doll. And then I drew the Chugach tag. So here I had two doll sheep hunts in the same summer. Oh, wow. And 
went up on my first all sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories with Arctic Red River Outfitters and just had an amazing hunt. Nine days, saw 19 rams, uh, but did not see a 10-year-old ram, so I choose, chose not to shoot. Uh, came home without without a ram from Northwest Territories, but all the while knowing, you know, I've got the chew gash, so I've got another opportunity. A couple weeks later, uh, went in with Lance Kronberger of Freelance Outdoor Adventures. Uh, my, my hunting partner, Dar, came up, and we had just an amazing hike in and found an awesome double-broomed 11-year-old ram and um, got my first doll sheep, and it was it was a very rewarding um you know, thing to get a, to get a doll sheep, to get my own personal sheep. So it was, it was one of those things I'll never forget. You know, you never know, uh, you just never know what life will bring you. And I was, you know, if, if I only ever shoot one more sheep, you know, that sheep in my life, I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll be perfectly happy. I want to shoot more. I want to witness more, but I'm fortunate just to get one. Yeah. Well, and how rewarding for you to put in, you said 11 days in the first hunt, Right. Yeah, it was actually nine nine days, nine days on the first hunt. Um, We saw a nine year old, a couple eight year olds and some seven year olds. We just never really saw that old, big, you know, mature ram that that I wanted. And I'm one of those guys. I do not need to kill something just to say that I did it. Uh, I was willing to spend the money to go up there and not get one. I was willing to go to the Chugach and not get one. I, I do not have to shoot to be you know, put photos on Instagram or pump up my ego. Um, oh, most man. of the time, if I shoot something, it's going to be something, uh, that I, that I, that I, you know, a maturity level that I want a size of an animal that I want. And I, I go home more times than not, you know, especially I do a lot of coos deer hunting, you know, I've shot some really big bucks, but I've gone home so many times without animals because like like i said i'm a student of the game i love everything about it and you know killing an animal to me is not the it's it's not why i do it it is not why i do it yeah and you know that's a from a management standpoint and even a you know um even a standpoint of just taking care of the resource and stuff like that like if you if you shoot an animal that is literally at the end of its life you're, you know, you're saving it from a, from a horrible death. Um, and you know, you're allowing it to live, live a long, full life. I mean, at, there's probably people that are listening to this. that will be like, Oh my God, I'm never, never going to buy a DSD decoy again. Like these guys are gay. Um, but you know, that really is like when you love the animal so much and have so much respect for them and stuff, it, you kind of start to think, think that way, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I know, Dave, uh, like everybody has their own sense of what they want to do and how they want to do it. And I certainly don't look down on anybody that shoots something that I wouldn't shoot at all. It's just for me, I don't need to kill every hunt to have it be a successful hunt. I, I if, if everything's right and the situation is right and the animal's right and everything feels good, then so be it. If not, I'm perfectly fine having my video, having my photos and enjoying you know, what I got to witness and what I got to see and move on to the next experience. So, you know, I, I, I feel like everybody in their own hunting career and fishing for that matter, they kind of go through uh, a stage of, of uh, you know, oh, I got to get some, I got to get some. And then it seems like the older I get, the more it's just like, hey, I, 
if if I shoot something, it's going to be something very mature and very big. And if not, it's fine. I don't need to shoot something. Mm-hmm. Right yeah. On. Well, and Dave and I can completely relate to that. Um, you know, we we got started waterfowl hunting together. Um, and you know, with, with waterfowl hunting back then and, and still today, you know, there's, there's probably a majority of, of hunters out there who really, you know, like to pile them up and, yeah. and get done, you know, get limited out like really fast. And we just love to, you know, watch the birds and, and observe them, you know, like, like you in their natural state, like completely committed to to our our setup like they have no idea that you know we're we're sitting you know in our in our blinds completely concealed and they've completely um fallen for for our decoy spread and they're just piling by the thousands you know into the decoys and and that's one of the really really fun things about waterfowl hunting for both dave and i and it's um it just it never ever gets old and like you said you know i mean the day that the day that i get tired of it um might as well throw in the towel but uh fortunately so far um i'm every bit as excited now to do it as i was when i first started you know yeah and i i think if that is your reward if that is what you seek i think your longevity for doing it is going to be much more because you know you don't have to stack up a limit not saying you won't and wouldn't be proud to stack up a limit but it's like that's not what you're there for you're there for all of the experiences of the noises and the sounds and the and the smells and everything of the activity coming into your spread and that's what gets you going so you know i always try and you know promote hunting and fishing and tell everyone you know everybody's got their own thing that turns their crank and gets them going um and so be it yes sir well i tell you what jay um i think it's about time for us to to wrap up this this episode um we sure do appreciate you joining us today i mean this has been a ton of fun and i can't tell you um how great it is for for dave and i um to have you on and how much you know we appreciate all your help um for those who don't know uh Jay was a real inspiration for Dave and I to get this podcast started. You know, he'd been doing it for years um, uh, with with Jay Scott Outdoors podcast and has been so successful and super helpful for us. He's given us a lot of real insight and and we really appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks Absolutely. so much. Yeah, you bet. You know, I'm I'm excited. Uh, You guys, you're welcome. I'm excited that uh, you guys have started your podcast. I think it's a great extension of being able to let your customers get to know you a little bit better. And I'm sure as your podcast um, keeps maturing, you'll start seeing more and more value in it. Um, I know from myself being a podcaster, um, you know, just the amount of, of messages, emails and what have you that I get from people that how much they've they've learned from the guests that i've had on and and just things that have made them a better hunter better fisherman that's what's rewarding for me is helping people to become better um to enjoy the outdoors more uh and you know that's what's fun about podcasting is you get to talk to great people and i've been very very fortunate to have great guests on and and um obviously i i love what i do so it makes it a lot easier to talk about but it's just a great extension to um, further hunting and fishing and, you know, just the outdoor lifestyle that we live. Um, so it, it's, it's been fun. I'm 
looking forward to seeing the success. I know your customers lo- will love your podcast and um, want to commend you guys on taking the step and getting it started and getting it going for sure. Right. Thanks. And and we want to encourage any of our listeners who haven't checked out your podcast to do so. Um, you know, you're, you're just a, a super passionate guy and every episode that I've listened to um, has been super entertaining. Um, check out J Scott outdoors podcast and become a subscriber. I guarantee you, um, you, you won't regret it. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, they can find it on iTunes, um, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, just type in J Scott outdoors. Uh, and, um, also if, if anybody wants to follow along my adventures, a lot of, um, content is on Instagram. Uh, that's just J Scott outdoors. Uh, pretty simple. I'm looking forward to getting some of these new decoys that I got in the mail yesterday, getting them down and dirty and getting some good footage. Hopefully about a month from now or a little more than a month. When I get back kind of mid-April, late April, or excuse me, mid-May, I can uh, send you guys some footage of some uh, carnage that these uh, decoys have created. All right. That's Sounds awesome. Great. We look forward to it. Thanks okay. for having me on. Thank you, Jay. Take care.